You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Okay, 1 Peter 5 is where we are. You're going to need a Bible. And so if, if there's one underneath every three or four seats, something like that. So if you've got one under, you might want to make sure you grab that. If you don't, you're going to probably want to, uh, to, to be able to look at someone beside you. We're going to be all over 1 Peter um, this morning. We started uh, this series on sept- in September, the first, like the first full weekend of September, we started 1 Peter. It is now the end of April, and the next calendar year, and we are finishing. And so our hope for you has been that these 105 verses, these five chapters, have been used by God to breathe great life into you. Um, that, that God would use, our prayer has been that God would use the, these words of 1 Peter to, to deepen the roots of our faith into gospel soil. And, and so we pray that that's happened for you, that this study has been beneficial and profitable for you in that way. Okay, now I want to j- just get you ready for what happens at the end of this sermon today. So at the end of this sermon, th- there's going to be a moment where I stop talking and we open it up to our church family to talk about what God has shown them, what God has taught them, h- how God has used this letter to, to work change into them. Um, we've got that moment at the end of this service to talk about how God has spoken to you and what God has done in you over the last four or five months as we've studied this book. And so in light of that, I just want to preface it by saying this, that um, we really want you to talk then. We don't want you to be bashful. Um, this is kind of a moment where we get to break down some of the formal walls that happen when we gather. And so um, I consider it mutual encouragement. Um, when we think about that, when we get to see how the spirit of God has used his word to, to mold and to shape and to do some things in your heart. So we're not necessarily looking for a theological debate, but we're looking for this is how God has pressed first Peter into my life. And this has been the benefit of that. So I'd like to just as we're talking this morning to get you ready for that, and for you to be thinking about that, because um, here in about 30 minutes, we're there. OK, OK, so first Peter, this, this is the plan for this morning. Um, I want to, I want to give you five reasons why we chose to study first Peter, and that's going to form sort of a summary for us this morning of the entire book. And so this is totally a shotgun approach. We're covering a lot of territory. You're going to need first Peter in front of you. It'd really be helpful for you. Um, as we look at five reasons why we chose to work through first Peter. So here's the first one. First reason why we chose to, to spend 25 weeks preaching through the book of First Peter, number one, is it's a comprehensive letter. Just a general reading of First Peter will show you right off the get-go that it covers a vast territory of issues. It is, it's got a comprehensive um, kind of scope of what all it's covering in the midst of these five chapters. Now listen to, to Wayne Grudem in his commentary on First Peter. Listen to him describe the breadth of what First Peter covers. He says this, it'll be on the screen for you. In only 105 verses, 1 Peter ranges over a wide field of Christian theology and ethics. Here's the great doctrine of redemption from its conception before the foundation of the world to its consummation in our receiving an inheritance that will never fade away. Here are repeated calls to holiness and to humble trust in God for each day's needs. Here is practical counsel for marriage and for work, for relating to government, for witnessing to unbelievers, for using spiritual gifts, for serving as a church officer. Here also is profound comfort in sorrow and insight as far as God allows into the deep mysteries of suffering. 
Here is the majestic beauty of the church as a spiritual temple in which we daily offer spiritual sacrifices pleasing to God. And here is Jesus, the chief shepherd who cares for us, the example who leads us, the chosen cornerstone who establishes and unites us, and the Savior who bore our sin in his body on the cross, the one whom, not having seen, we love. The glory of Christ shines forth from this letter into the hearts of all who read it. God's words in 1 Peter will richly repay serious study, memorization, and meditation. And we hope that it's done that for you. That that it has richly repaid you as we've spent some time studying it. And when you consider the vast kind of range that 1 Peter uh, covers, I want to just point your attention to 1 Peter chapter 3, the first seven verses. Where we spent, and this is just one example of this range, where we spent three weeks working through a biblical view of marriage. And so we spent a week on kind of getting this overarching picture of marriage. And, and then we started working through first Peter, um, these first seven verses of first uh, Peter three, where Peter starts by addressing the ladies. Do you see that here in the first six verses? And, and he's calling ladies toward biblical womanhood. And you see, I think a summary statement of those six verses to the ladies would be found in verse five, where, where he's calling ladies to put their hope in God. So that means your hope is not in your husband or the prospect of a husband. Your hope is not in money or things money can buy for you. It's not in your house. It's not in your cars. Your hope is firmly fixed in God. This is what biblical womanhood means on a foundational level. Your hope is in God. And then he gives another picture of biblical womanhood, what what godly women look like in verse six, where he talks about they're fearless. They don't have a fear. They're not anxious and worried because they they know God. They know the one who controls all things. And then you see in verse three and four that godly women are more concerned about their inner beauty, this imperishable inner beauty of their heart, as opposed to the outward beauty that they would offer. That, That godly women are more concerned about what is eternal than what is temporal. Godly women are more concerned about their inner beauty than their external beauty. And then in verse one, he says that, that godly women, women who are hoping in God, biblical womanhood is characterized by the joyful willingness to follow the leadership of their husband, that there's a joyful willingness to do that, not a begrudging sort of, I'll do it if you have a gun to my head, but, but a joyful willingness. And then we turn the attention to the, to the guys in verse seven. And we spent a week totally beating up our guys in the room. Right. And so you see in verse seven, Peter says this, likewise, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. So, so part of what it means to live in an understanding way, it means that husbands, you have to get a biblical view of what marriage is. You you have to see that this is the primary metaphor in the Bible that represents the gospel, that the glory of God and the gospel is at stake in how your marriage operates. So you've got to get a biblical view of what marriage is, and then you've got to get a biblical view of what your role in marriage is. That that if God has called your wife to joyfully and willingly follow your leadership, you know what God's calling you to do? To actually lead and to do that well. See, that's your role is to actually be a good shepherd, a good pastor in your home. So, So let me just make this real clear for the guys in the room. God is divinely given you this mandate to be a great pastor in your home, not a passive deadbeat husband who doesn't care, who's disengaged, but an active pastor engaged in the life of your home, actively shepherding your wife and your kids. That's your role that God's given you to take primary responsibility for your house. 
And do you remember in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned? Eve is the one who ate the fruit. Do you remember who God came looking for? So, so although Eve took the first bite, when God shows up on the scene calling them to, to accountability, do you remember whose name he calls out? Adam, where are you? See, men, when God shows up at your door to look at the faithfulness and fruitfulness of your home, do you know whose name he's calling out? Your name. See, this is your God-given role to pastor in your house. And God's really serious about this. Look at what he goes on to say here. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So, so we talked about what it means to honor your wife. But part of honoring your wife means that you honor her maritally. That means you're not the female buddies guy. That means you're not the flirt guy. That means you're not the wondering eyes guy. That means you're not the download pornography guy. That you're actually honoring her maritally. That means you honor her physically. That, that you would take the strength that God has given you and you would leverage that for the protection of your wife, not the abuse of your wife. That you would honor her verbally. That the way you speak to your wife would, would actually honor her. Men, I think it's good for you to know this. That you can actually hit your wife harder through words than you can through your fist. And see, God, God has called you to honor your wife verbally. To speak to her in ways that would breathe life into her. God has called you to honor your wife financially. You're providing for your family. He's called you to honor your wife emotionally. So you can't disengage by saying, okay, so I brought home money, so now I've done my job. That's not true. You know your wife has a soul? She's actually got a soul for you to get to know, for you to shepherd, and for you to pastor. She's actually got emotional needs that God has called you to walk beside and, and to, 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 to work to meet. God has called you to honor her parentally. That means you're engaged in the home. You're not passive. God's called you to honor her spiritually. That means that you're to be the pace setter in your home with all things spiritual. I mean, do you hear that? You're to be a pace setter. That doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but it means you're to be the pace setter in your home. That you're to make sure your, church, your family is involved in a church, that you're under authority of a church, that, that your life is intertwined in the community of the church. Men, that all falls on you in honoring and uh, in, in how you honor your wife. Okay, now I want to just make this plea one more time to marriages in here. Because the truth is, when, a lot, when we talk marriage, a lot of us have this instant thing come up, if we'll think about our marriage, that our marriage has issues. And can I just tell you that we don't expect your marriage to be perfect. So you don't have to pretend like it doesn't. If it's got issues, that's okay. We just don't want those issues to stay there unaddressed. And so I think what happens for a lot of especially men, and this is on you, men in the room, if there is something in you that's saying, we've got some cracks and crevices in our marriage, this is what you cannot do. You cannot be passive and stick your head in the sand and hope those cracks are just going to go away. Cracks and crevices never go away when you just kind of leave them unattended to. Do you know what they do? Cracks and crevices have this tendency to turn into canyons and craters. That's what they do. See, if you stick your head in the sand and just hope, well, well maybe in a year these things will be gone, that's not going to happen. And, and listen, if that's you, if, if you know your marriage has some cracks and crevices in it, you need to get help for that. You need to admit where you are, confess where you are, and get help for that. There's no shame in that. The, the shame is if you sit in silence in the midst of that. So, so you need to get help. We'll get you hooked up with great biblical counseling, which is really discipleship on steroids. 
It's a, it's a good thing for every couple in the room, especially those who have cracks and crevices that have formed, though. So, so men, you need to make sure you're proactive in that. So you just see in this instance, seven verses here, you've got this wide, vast array of topics like marriage that first Peter covers. It's got this comprehensive scope to the issues that it deals with. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to preach through it is so we can help address a wide variety of the issues that are happening among our church family. Here's the second reason we chose to work through first Peter is it's a gospel reminding letter. First Peter does a great job of reminding you of the gospel. Now, we say this all the time in here, that the most important thing you can do in life, the most important, like you strike out on everything else, but you get this right and you're okay, is to know the gospel. That is the most important. The most important thing you can do daily in life, every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the most important thing you can do daily is to remind yourself of that gospel. The most important thing in life is know the gospel. The most important thing you can do daily in life is to make sure you are remembering, that you are reminding yourself of all that God has done for you in the person and work of Jesus. And and 1 Peter serves us in this way. This is what Martin Luther, the reformer, said about 1 Peter. He said, the epistle of Peter is one of the grandest of the New Testament. And it is a true, pure gospel. For Peter teaches or inculcates the true doctrine of faith. Now, how Christ has been given to us, who takes away our sin and saves. First Peter does a great job in this. Let me just break this into three categories. First Peter does a wonderful job in helping remind us of the gospel. First Peter clearly shows us Jesus. It clearly shows us Jesus. One of my favorite passages in First Peter turned out to be the first eight verses of chapter two. Just flip over there. Chapter two, one through eight. Now, I want to just show you this, where Peter is giving us a view of Jesus. He's teaching us, showing us who Jesus is. And you see it in verse four, where, where Peter's going to call Jesus a living stone. That means he, he was buried three days in a tomb and he's actually risen from the dead. That Jesus is alive. He's a living stone. And then you see in verse six, where, G, where Peter calls Jesus the cornerstone, quoting out of Isaiah, calls Jesus the cornerstone. Okay, now that, that is a picture, a metaphor taken from ancient architecture where you've got this cornerstone imagery. So, so when a house was built, the cornerstone was the first and foundational stone that was laid. And, and Peter's saying, this, this is who Jesus is. He, he's a cornerstone like that. He's got to be foundational in your life. And, and this is where biblical Christianity and American Christianity kind of run in opposite directions. So I think this is how a lot of us think about Jesus in our life. Is, is rather than Jesus being the cornerstone that's foundational, if you could view your life as a wall. So, so all the different components of your life are the bricks that make up this wall. So you've got the brick in this wall of family. You've got the brick in this wall of friends, of your finances, of uh, you just name the, the work, all the different bricks that kind of make up what your life is. See how most of us view Jesus goes like this. When we get Jesus, we just have one more brick to put in the midst of that wall. So he's right next to work and he's right next to family. He's just kind of got his one little contained spot right there in the wall. But that is not what biblical Christianity is. Biblical Christianity and becoming a Christian means this happens, that the wall of your life has been ripped to shreds. It has been completely torn asunder. Jesus in the old foundational kind of cornerstone ripped out and Jesus, the new cornerstone has been laid down foundational. And now the rest of your life is built on that stone. Now, every other brick in your life finds its place 
in relationship to Jesus. Marriage finds its place foundationally in relationship to Jesus. Finances in relationship to Jesus. Friends in relationship to Jesus. Hobby in relationship to Jesus. Church in relationship to Jesus. Everything finding its place in relationship to Jesus. So this is what it means to be a Christian. That Jesus is foundational. He's not just compartmentalized into one little brick of your life. He surrounds and is foundational to everything that you do. See, this is the difference in being religious and regenerate. The religious do a lot of Christian things. They have Jesus as a brick in the wall. The regenerate, people who are actually Christians, saved and redeemed by God, have Jesus as the cornerstone of their life. So so he gives this cornerstone imagery. Jesus is the cornerstone. But you see in verse 8, 7 and 8, where Jesus is also for some a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, some will recognize Jesus as the cornerstone. They'll trust and treasure Jesus and, and they'll receive him, lay him in on the foundational component of their life. Everything finding its place in relationship to Jesus. But, but others will not recognize Jesus as the cornerstone. They will reject Jesus and run from Jesus. And eventually they'll be crushed by Jesus, but by this cornerstone. In Luke 20, when Jesus is talking about this same passage in Isaiah, he quotes the exact same thing that Peter does, but he adds on this, this one little line at the end, that all those who reject him, that this cornerstone, will eventually be crushed by him. What will eternally break against Jesus. See, those are the only options. It's either Jesus is laid down as the cornerstone or he's the stone of stumbling and rock of offense who eternally crushes us. And I think it would be worth just stopping here and just saying this, that if you find yourself in the room and there's never been a moment where you have trusted and treasured Jesus, that's never been done. You've never laid Jesus as the foundational cornerstone of your life. Can I just plead with you? Today would be a great day for that. Jesus stands ready and willing to save today. So first Peter gives us a clear view of who Jesus is, but first Peter also gives us a clear view of the work of Jesus, of all that he has done for us. Okay. So look, turn over to to chapter three, verse 18, chapter three, verse 18. This is going to be one of the, the most clear gospel defining statements in the entire Bible. First Peter three, 18, uh, Peter says this for Christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit, in the spirit. Peter says, this is what Jesus has done for you. He has suffered for sin. Sin, this thing that separates you from God. Sin, this thing that has earned you the eternal condemnation of God, that is offensive to God, that has earned you the death penalty from God. Peter is pointing us to Jesus who conquers our greatest enemy, sin, who triumphs over our greatest threat, sin. And how does he triumph and conquer over this great enemy of sin? He, He lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life, and he died upon the cross in, in your place. For, for your sin, t- taking all of your sin upon him. Peter's saying that this is how he conquered sin for you. He was slayed for your sin. This is why we can sing with the hymnist in it as well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. This is what Peter's saying. That Jesus died for your sin. He suffered for your sin. But, but he also says it was the righteous for the unrighteous. 
Peter is saying that Jesus died as the perfect substitute for you. That, that on the cross, that you should have been nailed to. Jesus willingly, joyfully took your place there. The righteous, perfect Jesus in place of us, imperfect. There's a sense which on the cross, all of your sin was stacked onto Jesus and all of Jesus' perfect righteousness was placed onto you. That's the righteous for the unrighteous. And then he says this, what did that accomplish? To bring us to God. Do you know what the greatest problem in the world is? The, The greatest problem in the world. It's not a disease. It's not AIDS. It's not some moral or social cause. It's not some injustice that we want to right. It's not any of those things. It's not the threat of war. The greatest threat, the greatest problem in the world is Isaiah 59 two, that our sin has separated us from God. This is the greatest problem in the world. We are enemies of God, Romans 5. That we are objects of God's wrath, uh, Ephesians 2. That's the greatest problem in the world. And that great problem is what makes the gospel such great news. That the life and death of Jesus has actually made a way around that problem. It's actually solved that problem. I I love what it says here, that that Jesus, his life and death, has made a way for us to be right with God. He died to bring us to God. That you can actually know God. You can actually be right with God. This is the great news of the gospel. That your greatest problem is answered in Jesus. There's a sense in which Jesus, the Son of God, was treated like an enemy. So that you, an enemy of God, might be treated like a son or daughter of God. See, this is the great news of the gospel. Peter clearly shows us that. And Peter clearly shows us our identity in Jesus because of the work of Jesus for us, who we now are and what we now have in Jesus. One of my favorite statements in our favorite verses in first Peter is in chapter two, verse nine. Flip over there real quick. This is Peter writing to Christians. He's writing to people who, who the gospel has penetrated. They, they are redeemed, saved people. But he knows that they are prone to forget all that they have and all that they are in Jesus. And so he gives one of these beautiful reminding statements in chapter 2, verse 9. Peter says this to these guys. But you are a chosen race. That you are chosen. It doesn't say your choice. See, if you're a choice, you'd have something to boast about. It says you're chosen. This is unmerited favor from God, that you are a chosen race, that God has set his affection on you. And then he goes on. You're a chosen race and a royal priesthood. That means that you actually can have the presence of God in your life. And then he goes on. You're a holy nation because of the work of Jesus for you. When God looks at you, he sees a perfectly holy Jesus over you. You're a holy nation and a people for his own possession. That in the eyes of God, you are an irreplaceable possession. That's how he looks upon you. You're you're a people for for his possession that he loves and cares for. It's this beautiful just moment where Peter is reminding these Christians of all they have and all they are in the gospel. Reminding them of their gospel identity. So second reason we wanted to preach through first Peter is because it's a gospel reminding letter. It helps you daily remember all that God has done for you in Jesus. Third reason why we wanted to preach through first Peter. Number three, it's a suffering soaked letter. It's a suffering soaked letter. There are dark hues in the background of first Peter. 
throughout every, underneath every page are the dark hues of the people of God suffering great persecution. That this forms the background image. I like how one pastor said it, that there's a sense in which the recipients of First Peter are walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And here's the good news for you and I. As we get to read Peter's pastoral encouragement to them, it's a way for us to prepare for our own walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I, I tell you this all the time, that one of my jobs as your pastor is to con- to work labor, to work really hard at preparing you for, for suffering. For this intruder that's going to break into every one of our lives. And one of the reasons we wanted to preach through First Peter is because every chapter is littered with the debris of suffering. And it's, a, it's one of the best books in the Bible to, to present to you, to, to help walk you through, to, to help prepare you for these moments that are sure to come for you. And Peter teaches a lot of things about suffering. Let me just summarize four of the things that he teaches us throughout this letter. The first is that suffering is a certainty. Peter is firm on this, that if you live as a Christian, you need to expect suffering. Look at chapter four, verse one. Chapter four, verse one. Peter says this, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now skip down to verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Peter is saying this. It should not be strange to you as a Christian when suffering comes upon you, when the intruder breaks in the door. It shouldn't be strange. I I like how one um, pastor characterized and kind of summarized the Christian life. He says the Christian life is really just a life of, of painful joy. This is the Christian life. This is what life in a fallen world is like. We should expect great joy because we're Christians, but great pain because we still live in a fallen world. So Peter is saying, you need to know suffering is coming for you. It's an intruder that's going to break into every one of our lives. And so the question becomes, why is that? And Peter makes the answer to that question really plain. There is a reason that suffering is going to kind of break into every one of our lives. It's because suffering broke into the life of Jesus. The pathway of Jesus could be characterized like this. Pathway of Jesus equals suffering now, glory later. This is the life of Jesus. It's suffering now, glory later. Peter goes to great lengths to to, to help you see that, to help equate this for you, to help you see that the life of Jesus was suffering now, glory later. In in the book of 1 Peter, in this letter, five chapters, there's eight times in these five chapters where, where Peter is making the point explicit. Here is the pathway of Jesus. Suffering now, glory later. So in 111, points explicit. In chapter 2, verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 23. 224. Chapter 3, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 5, verse 1. Eight times Peter is saying, here is the pathway of Jesus. Suffering now, glory later. A cross first, a crown later. It's mistreatment first, triumph later. Okay, now, then, then he wants you to see this. The, 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 and he works really hard to help you see this, what the implication of that is. That the pathway of Jesus is the pattern for all of his followers. 
The pathway of Jesus, suffering now, glory later, is the pattern of all of his followers. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus is the example. You're going to follow in his steps. Suffering now, glory to follow. But can I just say what our problem is when it comes to suffering? Here's most everyone in the room's problem when it comes to suffering. We don't want suffering now, glory later. You know what we want? Glory now and more glory later. This is our problem. We want glory now and more glory later. Now think about what mismatched expectations do. When you got married, chances are the way you thought about your marriage was different than the way it played out, isn't it? So the way you thought about your your wife or your husband, it turned out a little bit different than that. So you thought it was going to be roses and 70 degree weather all day long and it was going to be great. But it turns out not to be that. And, and what do mismatched expectations do? When you think this about it, she thinks that about it, and, and both of those two thoughts go like this, what happens? It causes a lot of frustration, doesn't it? And so the same is true in our relationship with God. That when we expect glory now and more glory to follow, it's mismatched expectations. God never promises you that. He never promises. Here's what God promises you. Suffering now, but it's all worth it because there's glory later. And see, if we think it's glory now and more glory later, do you know what it will make us do? Kind of the posture towards God, what it will become? It's this posture of defiance and despising God and being frustrated with God. See, we've got to get this word from, first, from, from Peter here. Suffering is certain. It is an intruder that will break into every one of our lives. And, and just as a quick aside, if you're not seeing that in your life, if, if your pattern right now is glory, And more glory later, if that's your pattern right now in your life, then let me just encourage you to do this. Get to know people who don't know Jesus. Talk about Jesus to them. Invite them into your life. Have gospel conversations. Talk about the fact Jesus saved you from your sin, that you love Jesus, that you're living for Jesus. And see how quickly it it, it takes. See, See how long it takes for you to be acquainted with the pathway of Jesus, suffering now and glory later. See how long it takes you to be reacquainted with the the despising and the rejection of Jesus. See, if if we're not in the pattern of Jesus, suffering now, glory to follow, you know what it probably means? That we're not living in the pathway of Jesus. That we're actually not living there. See, when we're living in the pathway of Jesus, we can expect the pattern. Suffering now, glory to follow. Second thing we learn about suffering is that suffering is designed to refine. That God in his sovereignty has a plan for suffering. Look at the first chapter, chapter one, verse six and seven, where Peter says this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, this is chapter one, verse six, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse seven, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So he uses this imagery of, of trials being this heat that forms under our life to help test us, to prove us. There is a way in which suffering does two things for everyone in the room. It purifies your faith and it proves your faith. It purifies your faith in a sense. I love what, what Paul Tripp says, that God will take you where you didn't intend to go to produce in you things that you could not achieve on your own. See, suffering does that for you. God walks us through suffering to take us to a place that we would never choose to go to produce in us things that we would never be able to produce on our own. 
See, God knows that there are times that he has to break us to actually fix us. Now, listen to these words by John Piper as he describes this. He says, I've never heard anyone say the really deep lessons of life have come through times of ease and comfort. But I've heard strong saints say that every significant advance I've made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep in him has come through suffering. See, suffering has a way of producing in us things that we could never achieve on our own. In this way, it purifies. It helps bring to life things that would never be brought to life in us. But suffering also proves us. It's the way we know we aren't fair-weathered Christians. When, When it's 75 degrees and life is great for you, you don't know how much you love Jesus. You don't know how mixed your allegiance is. But when you get in the middle of suffering, when you got the test of suffering that has heated up your life, you see real quickly what's for real. Listen to John Piper go on to to kind of hit at this. He says, until hardship comes into your life, especially hardship for the sake of Christ and his righteousness, we do not experience the extent and depth of our own faith. Until times get hard, we do not taste and really know if we are fair weathered Christians. If when tribulations come, you persevere with faith, then you come out of that experience with a stronger sense that your faith is real, that you are proven, that you are not a hypocrite. The tree of trust was bent, but it did not break. Your fidelity and loyalty was put to the test and they actually passed. The gold of your your faith was put into the fire and it came out refined, not consumed. See, when our life is is lit up by suffering and and the heat has kind of brought everything to a boil in our life, here's what we get to see when we look into the pot of our life. Wow, there's something for real in there. There's a lot of impurity, but there's actually some pure gold in there. There's actually some faith in there. But you'll never see those mixed allegiances. and And if you've really got the real deal until suffering comes, you'll never know for sure. Third thing he teaches, about, uh, teaches us about suffering is that suffering sits under the sovereignty of God. There are a lot of things that you really, really, really need to know about suffering before you enter it. But here is the most important that suffering always, every sort of suffering sits under the sovereignty of God, that God is ultimately in control of all things, that it sits under his sovereignty. I, I think first uh, Peter four nineteen is probably a good summary of the letter as it relates to suffering. And here's what uh, Peter says in first Peter four nineteen. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Do you see that though? According to God's will, that every sort of suffering that you will ever endure is always underneath God's sovereign will. And here's great news for you in that, that it's not an accident, that you never suffer by chance, that there is a way in which God, the sovereign ruler of the universe, and now your dad, if you're a son or daughter of God, you're a Christian, will take every ounce of suffering you endure and twist and turn that suffering into your eternal benefit. This is the promise of God for you. The greatest thing, the most important thing you can know about suffering is it sits under the sovereignty of God. And lastly, Peter's going to tell us this, that suffering offers a unique way to glorify God. Look at 1 Peter 4.16. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. It always cracks me up when I see a football player who's just juke like 19 people. Then he scores a touchdown. Then he, you know, he spikes the ball, beats his chest, points up to the sky as he bends down on one knee to pray for a second. And can I just tell you, can I just tell you this? No one is impressed when you praise God when life is great for you. When you just scored the touchdown and spiked the ball. No one's impressed by that. But when you, when, when life gives you an uppercut, and then an elbow, and then like a right kick to the head, and you're laying down bloodied and bruised, bleeding to death, and and you still are humble enough to get on one knee and praise God in the midst of that, that is what is eye-catching. See, part of what Peter is saying here is that suffering offers you a unique opportunity that you will never have when, when life is good. A unique opportunity to glorify God. A unique opportunity to show that God is satisfying and sufficient. That God is trustworthy and all of his promises are true. Suffering gives you a unique opportunity to display that. When a Christian can be in the midst of incredible suffering, yet they can entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. That there is a God-glorifying element to that that nothing else in life will offer you. So this is suffering. This is one of the reasons we wanted to, to preach through 1 Peter. Here, here's the fourth reason for 1 Peter. Is that 1 Peter, the pages of 1 Peter, echo with the sounds of eternity. 1 Peter has this future orientation that lines the letter. So, so in 105 verses, 12 of those verses are intentionally meant to draw your gaze toward the eternal to try to unfix you from all this temporal stuff and to help you see what's to come. So, so let me just give you a sampling of this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. P- Peter says this. He's trying to draw our gaze up. He, he's trying to get us to look at this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So he's trying to draw our gaze above the horizon of our life so we can see what's to come. You've got the same thing in 1 Peter 13, where we're to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. That's a future orientation that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Look at chapter 4, verse 7, one of the clearest statements in, in the letter, where Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Like we need to come to, to grips with our life is a vapor. Eternity is forever. We need to get our gaze fixed on that. We need to labor to get a sense of what's to come. You, you see it um, in First Peter five verse four, where Peter says, "And when the thief, uh, when the chief shepherd appears, not the thief shepherd, the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory." See, he's lifting our eyes to the eternal. You see the same thing in First Peter five ten where he's telling us what God will do, that he'll restore and he'll strengthen, confirm. There's this future orientation that lines the letter. And let me give you this, um, this word by Jonathan Edwards, one of Amer- America's greatest theologians, as he echoes what Peter is trying to do here and shows why this is so important for your life and my life. This will be on the screen for you. Edwards says this, labor to get a sense of the vanity of this world on account of the little satisfaction that is to be enjoyed here, its short span and the unservableness when uh, we most stand in need of help. 
So he's saying you've got to labor to get a sense of how temporary everything earthly is. And, And then he says this, all men that live any considerable time in the world might see enough to convince them of its vanity if they would but consider it. But you know our problem? We don't stop and consider this very much. This is why First Peter is so valuable. It makes us consider how temporary earthly things are and how eternal everything in the future is. He goes on to say this. Labor, that's work, sweat. Labor to turn your thoughts this way. Labor, I love this phrase. Labor to be much acquainted with heaven. Why? If you are not acquainted with heaven, you will not likely be able to spend your life as on a journey to it. See, if you're not acquainted with heaven, you'll think this is all there is and you'll live like this is all there is. You will not uh, be sensible of its worth, of heaven's worth, nor will you long for heaven. Unless you are much conversant in your mind with a better good, it will be exceedingly difficult to loosen your hearts from worldly things. Do you know why so many of us have a death grip on temporal earthly things? It's because we're not laboring to get a sense of heaven. It will be exceedingly difficult to loosen your hearts from worldly things, to use them only in subordination to something else, and to be ready to part with them for the sake of the better good. Labor, therefore, to obtain a realizing sense. Listen to that word. Labor to, to obtain a, like a realizing sense, a tangible sense of a heavenly world, to get a firm belief of its reality. See, this is what Peter is laboring to do for us. He's trying to help us get a realizing sense, a tangible sense of what's to come for us. This future orientation. And lastly, number five. Fifth reason why we wanted to preach through First Peter is because it's a motivator for the mission of God. It's a motivator for mission. So let me just break down how the, the first, second, and third chapter, the logic of these three chapters as it relates to mission. Chapter one is all about identity. This is chapter one is all about gospel identity. This is who you are and what you are because of the work of Jesus. So look at the first verse in, in first Peter, first Peter one, one and two. What does first Peter tell you that you are in those verses? He tells you that you're elect exiles. Elect is who you are in relationship to God. That you are chosen. That you are set apart. That before time began, God set his affection on you. And when all time ends, you can be completely confident that that affection will still be set on you. Election tells you that God has broken down every and overcome every obstacle that stands between you and him. That he has redeemed you and done everything needed to be a father to you. That's election. So this is who you are in relationship to God. It's a profoundly theological point. But then he says, but you're elect exiles. That's a profoundly social point. Elect is who you are in relationship to God. Exile is what you are and what you're to do in relationship to the world. You're to be a temporary resident. That this world is not your home. That you're to be an exile here because you're elect of God. You're an exile here. You're to be a temporary resident here. There should be some unsettledness to you here. As an exile, we're not just God's people. That's elect, but we're more than just God's people. We're also elect exiles. We're God's people embracing God's mission. This is who we are. We're God's people embracing God's mission. And then in chapter two, Peter outlines a gospel life. Now, in light of who you are, chapter one, you live like this. 
So this is what God has done for you and to you. So now you can actually live in a certain way. This is um, chapter two, verse 12. In light of what God has done for you, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter is saying that because of what God has done in you, chapter one, it should produce in you a distinctly Christian life that demands a gospel explanation for it. That you should be living in such a distinct way that it creates questions. It demands a gospel explanation. It, it, it demands an answer that only the gospel could give for it. So he outlines what that sort of a life would look like. Um, look at verse 13 in chapter 2. It's, it's this idea of submitting to authority. Then you get to verse 18. It's how we endure patiently and graciously unjust suffering. Then you get to chapter three. It's how we operate in marriage. Then you get to chapter three, verse eight. And it's how the church shows unity and sympathy and brotherly love and tenderness and humility towards one another in this room. See, the church should be a question creating community. The church should be a place that demands a gospel explanation and how they interact with and love one another. That's what the church should be, a question-creating community. And then you get to chapter 3, and Peter shows you what gospel lips looks like. You get to chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Chapter 2, it's you live in such a way that demands a gospel explanation. Chapter 3, you actually give a gospel explanation when they ask. That's the point of chapter three, that your lips would actually be speaking the gospel, that on your lips, Jesus would flow. Okay, this is the point of, of chapter three. So it's chapter one. This is identity. Chapter two. Now, this is how you live. Chapter three. This is how you speak in light of all of that. This has been one of my prayers for all of us in the room, for, for your family, for, for you personally, for me personally, is that. God would use first Peter to make us faithful and fruitful missionaries that, that God would use this study to, to maybe, maybe it's even this year that we would see the fruit of this in your life, that, that you would, that you would see God use your life and lips, your life and lips, not someone else's, your life and lips for the salvation of another person that you'd begin praying for someone who doesn't know Jesus. You would invite them into your life. You would have gospel conversation with them. And you would see what you'd see God do what only he can do. You'd see him redeem and rescue and save. And, and God would use you to do that. And we're praying hard that God would, God would start creating missionaries in this place who have the, the, the gospel lips and gospel lies in their life, demonstrating the gospel with their lips, declaring the gospel. Okay. Now this is where we're going to pause. And this is your time to shine. We're going to have Kevin and Andy. Uh, I think Kevin um, will have mics for you. And uh, th this is where at the end of each set of sermons, we try to pause just to kind of break down some of the formality and give you a second to talk about over the last 25 weeks, what God has done in you, kind of done to you as it relates to first Peter. Okay. Now this is that moment where you're like, oh my gosh, I cannot talk in front of people. And here's what I just want to encourage you. If God's done something good in you over the last several months, for the mutual encouragement of, of your faith family, you, you need to be bold enough to share that. So let's just encourage you. We would love for you to share if God's been at work in you through First Peter. So in light of that, we'll open it up. And uh, if you've got questions, um, Andy's got a microphone and he'll get it to you here. So just raise your hand and he will get that right over to you.
Wait all day, but I got nowhere to be, right? So I, um, through the series, have kind of just gotten a, a clarification of the gospel. It, it almost happens every Sunday, just in general, but uh, um, going through First Peter, it kind of takes the, the gospel and almost puts it kind of on a turntable and lets you kind of examine it from a bunch of different perspectives. And then um, last Sunday kind of hit me like a, a ton of bricks, just realizing that... Um, you know, this isn't really just something you go and do on, on Sundays. This is life and death. This is, you know, the devil is practicing every day, essentially. You know, like a, a, there's a book called Tap that uh, references him to a MMA fighter. You know, imagine this fighter going to the gym every day for eight hours a day, working everything in his mind to uh, to for your ruin. And then, you know, just thinking about how my life is, in comparison to that, has been, uh, has, you know, just kind of really uh, worked on me quite a bit. Thanks, Jared. <clears throat> we, we don't have a ton of time, so if you want to say something, I encourage you to jump on it pretty quick. <laughs> yep. Miss Sandy. And right now, this side of the room is totally dominating y'all. So you might want to get on this. Kevin's up here with the mic. Okay, my heart is like racing. Um, we've been through suffering this Will summer. you stand up, Miss Sandy, oh, so everyone can see oh, you there? Now you're really doing Yeah, I know. It gets even worse. We've had... Thanks. <laughs> there we go. We've been through suffering this summer. Yes. And um, one thing that I've heard from you more than once is no matter what affliction has been placed on me, no matter what someone has done to me, it just doesn't compare to what I've done to God. Yeah. Um, and when we were approaching Easter, just watching the Passion, you really need to look at that again mm-hmm. because it just shows you that that's how evil our sin is. And if He was able to forgive and just you know move on, that that's the the greatest example. Yeah. So sorry, for sure. <laughs> but that just is something that really kind of stuck. And yeah. when you keep to that, then really it doesn't matter. It doesn't yeah. matter what people do to you when your eye is focused on the ball there. Yeah. So for sure. Thanks for thank sharing you. that. Th- this is how you know when you're getting the gospel is when your sin against God is more grievous and offensive to you than other sins against you. And that's exactly what you're saying there. So thanks for reminding us of that. <clears throat> I'm looking hard at this side of the room right now. I mean, hard. Anyone else? Miss <clears throat> Jennifer. She just came through for this side. Um, oh, right. wow. We've got another. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm missing it here. Yeah. Let's. Yeah. Go for it. Um, uh, I know that. Um, haven't been to a lot of these weeks of going through First Peter, but from what I've been seeing, it's um, through suffering, it's um, sort of frightening for me to think about that. And in ways, I have had a little suffering, but to 
every time I read about how what Jesus went through, there's no way that it could match that. And it's still very humbling for me. And um, it gives me encouragement to know that He went through so much that still that it gives me hope that even the littlest amount of suffering that I could go through and know that it'll make me better for it. Yeah. And even though it's frightening to even think about that there's still probably more suffering that I'll go through, it's still encouraging to know that there's still an end and it can make God will help me through that. Thanks so much for sharing that. You know, and I think you bring up a great point that there's a sense in which suffering gets us to the end of ourself, which is scary for every one of us in the room. Um, but the truth is, it's not scary for God. Like, that's exactly where God would like for us to always be. You know, so I, thanks for sharing that very much. Miss Jennifer. There was a week, one of the weeks we did uh, marriage, and Rod told a story about the the guy, uh, if you remember the story, it was a bunch of pastors, and everybody knew that this pastor's wife was really difficult, and the guy afterwards came up to him and said, you know, I'm really sorry if I offended you when I was talking about how great wives can be, and he said, you shouldn't be offended. My wife brings me to my knees every day. And everybody laughed and chuckled because and, it is kind of a funny statement. But it just um, was very convicting. And a friend of mine, for me, on advice I've given or thought to give, I didn't quite say it, but into her marriage, who's, it, that it is difficult. And she has displayed the gospel through it. And he made the point, it's a, the suffering is a unique way to... Um, allows a unique way to display the gospel. And just this idea of, I definitely pray more in suffering. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this, um, just being active in our prayer life and advising people to pray and um, being that gospel light in those unique ways in our suffering and supporting people in their difficult marriages and raising children and um so it just it, there was a lot of different ways that it kept layering itself as we walked through Peter and just stories and lessons it had for me um, on that. Mm-hmm. So prayer was a big uh, subject for yeah. me. So thanks for sharing that, Jennifer. Okay, just uh, maybe another minute. Yeah, another minute or two. Mr. Joe, just real quick. Uh, in. I have uh, teenage girls, and uh, I'll kind of preface off what she's saying over there. When you let your spouse be the spiritual leader for your family, it, it turns into all kinds of suffering, and not just for you, but for your kids. And, and so I've learned a lot about suffering lately just by watching my kids and not being that spiritual dad for my kids. So I would encourage the men in here to really take heed of that. If you have young kids, to, to be that spiritual leader and jump in there with your wife and start leading your family because... You know, later on down the road, you can see suffering. It's not just for you, but it is for your kids. So yeah. that really meant a lot to me. Thanks for sharing that, Joe. And it's been great to see God do a lot of that in you, for sure. Okay. Hey, church family. Love you guys. Um, so uh, one thing that I've kind of learned um, I'm this whole semester, there's been about three or four kind of big kind of things that have come up. And each time I have... Stop laughing. Uh, each time that I've gone through them, I've gone through them differently, and I've gone through one wrong and one um, kind of wrong and right, and then there's one that I feel like I've 
um, made really good progress with it. And each time through it, um, I just kind of learned that w- along with, with suffering, that suffering comes in, in seasons and it comes in, in strides. And there's a lot of seasons during the semester where it was great and awesome. And then, then I would just get hit with a, a thing where I'd be really confused and didn't know what I was doing. But just con- being consistent spiritually and having consistently praying the entire time but but knowing that that God is constant at the same time it, it's really really cool to, to know that like my life is going trajectory wise this way and then everything else is coming down on me but God is up here and he's like this and it's just really really comforting um, and sanctifying so first Peter has taught me a lot about suffering and how to be consistent through that so Thanks, Isaac. I, uh, like, Rodney keeps talking about uh, suffering sits under the sovereignty of God, and, like, I've been able to, like, realize that this semester. Um, There's been a lot of stuff with my family, and, um, like, with my community group, um, we've been able to, they've been really able to encourage me through this, and just them praying for me, and, like, actually caring about it, Mm. and, um, through their encouragement, I've been able to encourage my parents who are going through a tough time right now, and just being able to preach to them First uh, Peter two nine through ten, um, it's really been encouraging to them. Yeah. And nothing like to boast about myself, but just like God's word is so incredible, it just takes away all the stress and just gives you rest. You can just rest in the gospel, and that those two verses have been really really helpful for me and my family. That's great. And so that's what I've Thanks learned. for sharing that. Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> um, I wasn't going to talk, and my heart started racing, and, and, and you always know when that starts happening, you have to say something. So um, bear with me, because I already know I'm going to cry, because I'm about to cry as it is. Um <clears throat> Mine is more of a confession. I started off the first Peter session in a little bit of suffering um, around Christmas, and I handled it okay, kind of like he said. Um, and then I just got lazy. I didn't stand firm in my faith. I didn't stand aware and sober-minded, and God has wrecked me and allowed me to become completely broken and numb into myself um, and completely lose sense of my identity and who I was in him. And the last three weeks, God has just reminded me how big his grace is, that though I've completely forgotten the gospel and what it means in my life, that doesn't change my gospel standing and it doesn't change his love over me. Um, And he slowly started working me back into Remembering who I am as his child, um, it's a daily struggle because now I have all these hooks tearing me apart. Um, And so one, I ask for prayer. Um, But two, I just, I encourage you and I beg you, don't forget that it's a real fight. You can't let one day be complacent because you said it last week that there is no neutral territory. Mm. Somebody has a claim on every spot on earth. And if you choose to stay neutral for one day, it's too late. Thanks, Jen. 
Kevin missed Michelle in the back, and I think we'll have to wrap it up here. <clears throat> Hello. Um, <laughs> I uh, the most convic- convicting um, sermon was the pride and humility. Um, an example, well, some of the examples you were giving was, you know, when we think of pride, we think of this huge guy walking through the door and people bowing down to him and he's like, yeah, I'm all that. But it's actually the opposite and the one who's insecure and like, oh, I wish I was that guy or, mm-hmm. you know, or that girl or, you know, yep. I, um, just insecure, just a low self-esteem. And one thing you said was, um, there is, they're both sin because they both are surrounding self. And I can recall a couple of times where, you know, um, I've been, you know, just still feeling like the victim in, in normal, I mean, many um, occasions. And I'm like, wow, I was being very prideful to not have security in who Christ has you know, made me to be, you know, I, that's low self-esteem. I'm not seeing who, you know, the, I'm not seeing through the eyes of Christ in, in, in view of myself. So in that sense, I'm prideful. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, it was hurtful. <laughs> I was like, I'm not prideful. And then that makes <laughs> me even prideful, you know. <laughs> so with that being said, um, that was very convicting and Mentally, you know, just in view of the gospel, just like you said today, reminding yourself of it daily. And in that sense, I can see who I am in, the, in alignment under Christ. So yeah. just appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that, Michelle. Last three verses. <clears throat> First Peter 5, 12-14. By Silvanus, I probably delivered the letter. A faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is, who is at Babylon, probably the church in Rome, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter, in this benediction, gives us a couple of things I want you to think about as we kind of close First Peter up. First thing he says is that this letter is all grace. This, this whole letter from 1-1 to 5-14 is all grace. He says that this letter is declaring the true grace of God. So, so he's wanting you to know, he's wanting you to leave with a tangible sense that everything that comes your way in life is ultimately a grace from God that he's going to use for your eternal good and eternal benefit. That you can be confident that when, when you run into a season of your life where, where the road turns into the valley of the shadow of death, when, when suffering soaks your life, when marriage is really difficult, when you lose the job, when you're lonely. I mean, we could go down the list there, but you can be confident that grace gets even there. The grace, grace goes even there. When kids go crazy, finances are tough, grace goes even there. That, that Peter is reminding us that grace is not just a past reality when God saved us from the from the penalty of our sin. It's not just a future reality. He's, he's going to secure us and, and kind of fend off the presence of sin, but it's also a present reality. When you woke up this morning, if you're a Christian, the grace of God met you. 
When you leave today, the grace of God's going to leave with you. Into every season, every celebration, every moment of grief, the grace of God goes there with you. He's saying this is all grace. And he tells you to stand firm in it. It's not enough to know that. You've got to wear that like armor. Sober-minded, self-controlled. You've got to be wearing that stuff every second of every day, knowing that it's all grace from God. And then secondly, he says in verse 14, greet one another with the kiss of love. This letter calls us to community. The end of this letter, Peter is reminding us with a communal metaphor. He's calling us towards community. So when we're talking about greeting one another with the kiss of love, that's family imagery. Family imagery. He's leaving us with a communal picture. He's saying, listen, life is bloody and brutal. Life in a fallen world is hard. And one of God's graces to you is a local church that your life can be intertwined with a faith family that can come around you and love you, support you, speak life into you. And and so I think it leaves you with this question is my life intertwined with this church family. Or if you don't come here, a church family is my life intertwined. There's that family imagery of the church, a reality for you. And then he says this on the parting shot here. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That peace has both a present and a future reality to it. It's got the present reality. This is a Philippians 4, 7, where Paul says the peace of Christ, it has this supernatural power to surpass all understanding. This is the sort of peace that follows you present day. And what is that peace based on? It's based on not the fact that that you know what tomorrow holds, but because you know the one who holds tomorrow. That peace is is what surrounds us when when we realize that we have a father who determines every day of our life, the, the number of days in our life. If you want a peace imparting thought that will allow you to sleep well at night, know this. God is sovereign and God is your dad. If you're a Christian, you need to know that. That's a a present day peace imparting thing, but it also has a a future dimension. When when the Bible talks about peace, there's a future reality to this peace. So this goes back to Genesis one and two. When God made the world, the Hebrews kind of our, we translate it peace, but the Hebrew word for that was shalom. The world was made in, in perfect harmony with God. The world was operating as it should be. Man was right with God, man was right with one another, and man was right with creation. And when our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, shalom was fractured. Now, all of those relationships are messed up. So this is why one author calls sin the vandalism of shalom. Shalom at that point was fractured. So if you read forward in the Bible, Genesis 4 and on, you see every sort of sin imaginable. This is all evidence that shalom has been shattered. But Peter here is introducing us to God's agenda in the future. That there will be a day where the shattered shalom is restored. That there will be a day coming where God puts back together everything that was broke in Genesis 3. And the prophets and really the entire Bible looks forward to this. Listen to Cornelius Plantinga as he describes, and we'll finish with this, as he describes this future orientation of peace. God's agenda for the future. He describes it like this. These prophets kept dreaming. So you've got the prophets in the Bible kept dreaming of a time when God would put things right again. They dreamed of a new age in which human crookedness would be straightened out. Rough places made plain. The foolish would be made wise and the wise humble. They dreamed of a time when the deserts would flower. The mountains would run with wine. Weeping would cease and people could go to sleep without weapons on their lap. People would work in peace and a fruitful effect. Can you imagine that? 
Lambs could lie down with lions. All nature would be fruitful, benign, and filled with wonder upon wonder. All humans would be knit together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And all nature and all humans would look to God, walk with God, lean toward God, and delight in God. Shouts of joy and recognition would well up from the valleys and seas, from the women in streets, and from the men on ships. And Peter is leaving you with that agenda of God that one day shattered shalom will all be put back together. Amen? Let's pray. We are going to finish this morning by uh, taking communion, and the guys are going to lead us in a couple of songs. And so as we do that, um, this, this is a moment, I think it would be good for you just to pray that the Spirit of God would package all of 1 Peter up and print that upon you. And for us to know as we finish 1 Peter, that every gospel promise that Peter makes to us, peace now, peace in the future, every gospel promise Chosen race, royal priesthood, elect exile. Every gospel promise God makes to us through this book is all dependent upon the work of Jesus. His body that was beaten to a pulp for you. His blood that was spilled on your behalf. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring you to God. And so as we sing these last songs, I'm going to encourage you just to to maybe just sit for a second under that. Jesus' body broken for you blood spilled for you so that you could be whole. That Jesus, the Son of God, was treated like an enemy so that you, an enemy, could be treated like a son or daughter. And as we finish up 1 Peter, we'll be able to celebrate that as you come up and as you dip the cracker in the juice and and you do communion. We've got a table, two tables up front, one in the back. And so as you get ready, um, we'd invite you to do that. People who take communion are people who are right with God. And so that means if if you're not a Christian, you've never stepped across the line of faith, we'd invite you to take Christ before communion. And if you are a believer, that means you're right with God. So you probably need to sit and just soak in this for a minute. Ask the Spirit of God to, to reveal any places that need to be confessed and repented of. So God, we love you and we thank you for your beautiful words to us in 1 Peter. And God, I pray that as we leave, like 1 Peter would leave with us, that we would be actively standing in this grace that we have seen. And so God, will you help us in that? God, will you help us? It's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.